everyone. Welcome to yet another 101 episode where we'll be rounding out our series on the innate immune system with a sub-series of special proteins that help both the innate and adaptive immune system to do their job. Before I reveal the topic today, first, let me introduce my co-host, Natalie Graham from the City of Hope Cancer Center. Hello. Hi, Natalie. How are things going today? I'm living the dream. This is great. Yeah. (laughs) How about you? You're always living the dream. I don't know how. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good. I'm all close to the end of my job hunt, so I'm feeling very positive. Nice. Good for you. Natalie, have you ever wondered why we always have two co-hosts on our show? Uh, Why? It's because when we start talking about immunity, we really complement each other. Aww. That's right, and and it's a great segue for what we're reviewing today, the complement system. Uh, I, I just feel like the complement system is one of those things you have to learn over and over again in immunology. Like biochemists have the citric acid cycle, and we have the complement system. So like, don't feel bad if it doesn't make sense at first. Are you ready to get into it? Yes, let's get into it. Also, the complement system, I think half of the problem is the naming part. It's actually yeah. pretty simple if the naming was consistent. <laughs> It's right. consistent. It's just stupid. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it just did not work out, I think, the way scientists wanted it to, and now it's too late to change that. Yeah. Unless you want to unpublish all those books that are out there. Anyway, let's talk about the complement system. When a pathogen breaches the host's epithelial barriers and the initial antimicrobial defenses, it next encounters a major component of innate immunity known as the complement system. Complements are a collection of soluble proteins present in the blood and other body fluids. These were discovered in the 1890s by Jules Bordet as a heat level substances in normal plasma whose activity could complement the bactericidal activity of immune sera. Part of the process of this complement activation involves opsonization, which refers to coating a pathogen with antibodies or complement proteins so that it can be more readily taken up and destroyed by phagocytic cells. Yeah, and you know, if you work in a lab, you probably have to heat kill the serum that you use in your cell culture media. And that's because in the serum, there's lots of complement in there. So when you you know, heat up your serum before you use it in your cell culture media, you're helping to denature those complement proteins that could potentially harm your cells and cause them to have like an inflammatory reaction and die. Yeah, that's a really good point. Also something that anybody who has ever worked with cell culture will definitely be able to relate to. Yeah. Although complements were first discovered as an effector arm of the antibody response, we now understand that it originally involved has evolved as a part of the innate immune system and that it still provides early protection in infection. In the absence of antibodies, in some cases, through more ancient pathways of complement activation, and there's also the arm that provides protection in presence of antibodies. This complement system is composed of more than 30 different plasma proteins, which are produced mainly by the liver. In the absence of infection, these proteins circulate in an inactive form. In the presence of pathogens or of antibodies bound to pathogens, the complement system becomes activated. 
particular complement proteins interact with each other to form several different pathways of the complement activation, all of which have the final outcome of killing the pathogen either directly or by facilitating its phagocytosis and inducing inflammatory response that helps to fight infection. There, so in that way, if the complement system is not directly killing the pathogen, it's going to bring in the immune cells to do it for them. There are three pathways of complement activation, and we're going to go over all of them. As the antibody-triggered pathway of complement activation was discovered first, this became known as the classical pathway of complement activation. The next to be discovered was the alternative pathway, which can be activated by the presence of the pathogen alone, that is, in absence of antibodies. And the most recently discovered pathway is the lectin pathway, which is activated by lectin-type proteins that recognize and bind to carbohydrates on pathogen services. I, I have a little question for So how do these 30 little random proteins know, or I guess if they can know, like how do they know which pathogens to attack? How can these little bitty individual proteins make a difference? That's a great question. The complement pathways are triggered by proteins that act as pattern recognition receptors that we learned in the previous episode. This detection activates an initial zymogen. A zymogen is an inactive substance which can be converted to an active substance like an enzyme by another enzyme. This, this whole process triggers a cascade of proteolysis in which complement zymogens are activated sequentially each becoming an active protease that leaves and activate many molecules of the next zymogen in the pathway. This is, it's like a relay race where you're passing the baton, except instead of passing the baton, you're cleaving the next molecule into an active form. Coming back, in this way, these, uh, these cascades are amplifying the signal and they're activating each other. This results in an activation of three distinct effector pathways. First is inflammation, then is phagocytosis, as we said, by coating the molecules, they, become, they make the target more visible to phagocytes. And then there is the membrane attack component, which we will talk about later. All of these help eliminate the pathogen. And in this way, the detection of even a small number of pathogens produces a rapid response that is greatly amplified at each step. Before we get into the mechanism, I think it's important to review nomenclature. The first proteins discovered belong to the classical pathway, and they're designated by the letter C followed by a number. The native complement proteins, such as the inactive zymogens, have a simple number designation, for example, C1 and C2. Now, unfortunately, they were named in the order of their discovery rather than the sequence of reactions. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> and here comes the horrifying part about complements. The reaction sequence in the classical pathway, for example, is C1, C4, C2, C3, C5, C6, C7, C8, and C9. So C4 comes before C2 and C3. Yes. Oh actually, if you, can, <laughs> if you can remember that, makes life very simple. So yeah, note that all of the not all of these uh, complement proteins are proteases. Only some of these can are zymogens that are activated to become proteases. 
The products of cleavage reactions are designated by adding a lowercase letter as a suffix. For example, cleavage of C3 produces a small fragment called C3A and the remaining large fragment C3B. By convention, the larger fragment is designated by the suffix B with, again, one exception. Oh. These exceptions, man, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> For C2, the large fragment was named the C2A by its discoverers. Another exception in the naming is the C1 complement protein because it has got three subunits, C1Q, C1R, and C1S. Note that there is no A and B here. And also, the C1Q, R, and S are not cleavage products. They are just distinct proteins that come together and comprise of this big molecule called C1. The proteins of the alternate pathway were discovered later, and they are designated by different capital letters. For example, factor capital B and factor capital D. Their cleavage products are also designated by the addition of a lowercase a or a lowercase b. Thus, the larger fragment of factor capital B is called capital B lowercase b. And uh. the small, and a small fragment is capital B lowercase a. Oh my god, that's all so confusing. No wonder it's so hard to memorize the complement pathways. Is complement really so important that I need to know it? I wish I could say no to that, but it's absolutely required. <laughs> yeah, besides acting in innate immunity, complements also influences adaptive immunity. Opsonization of pathogens by complement facilitate their uptake by phagocytic antigen-presenting cells that express complement receptors. This enhances the presentation of pathogen, uh, pathogen antigens to T cells. Then B cells also express receptors for complement proteins that enhance their responses to complement-coated antigens. In fact, if you ever learn about B cells classification, you will you learn about certain complement receptors that are specifically that are specifically uh, involved with a certain type of B cell responses. So yeah, there's a lot of importance to these complements in the lymphocytes area as well, apart from innate immunity. Now, in addition. Several of the component fragments can act to influence cytokine production by antigen-presenting cells, thereby influencing the direction and extent of the subsequent adaptive immune response. All right, you've convinced me. We can go over the pathways now. So uh, let's start with the classical pathway, because that was the first one. Mm -hmm. So the classical pathway initiates from antibodies recognizing antigens which then snowballs into the aggregation of a whole immune complex. Now, keep in mind, this could happen with an antibody binding to a soluble antigen, or maybe even an epitope lo located on a larger foreign entity like a parasite or a bacterial cell wall. Importantly, only IgM and certain flavors of IgG antibodies can initiate the classical complement pathway. When the antibody binds to its antigen, the constant, or FC, portion of the antibody uh, changes shape a little bit. When it changes shape, it exposes a spot where the C1 complement component can bind to the antibody. So C1 is just free-floating in the serum as just this larger molecule made up of something called C1Q, which we talked about, and then two molecules each of the serine proteases C1R and C1S. So together, you could call this C1QR2S2 but that's, that's, that's like way too much. <laughs> yeah, so we'll just call it C1. 
So uh, the C-1Q kind of looks like this weird alien spaceship with like six little legs. And the C-1RS, the C-1R2S2 looks like a little ring around the top part of the C-1Q molecule. So this big old C1 complex has to bind to at least two antibodies for any kind of reaction to occur. That sounds like it's not too likely to happen, but actually uh, this happens more often than you think it might. Because think of how IgM looks in the serum. It's like five separate IgM antibodies bound to each other by their FC region, and it looks like a snowflake. It's really actually quite beautiful. But when the IgM isn't bound to anything, the C1 can't get in to bind to those FC regions. But when the IgM finds a multivalent antigen, which means there's a lot of little epitopes that it can bind to that are close to each other, the pentamer that was a snowflake changes shape into something that looks more like a staple. Now, there are at least three different binding sites for C1Q, but only when the IgM has successfully bound to an antigen. And don't forget that C1Q can also bind to a number of other things apart from the FC region of the IgM, like tissue damage elements such as DNA and axons, and there are cell surface histones. Also, C1Q can bind to certain elements of the bacterial cell walls. Yeah, very true. So once the C1Q is nicely bound, the complement cascade can proceed. So this is where it gets tricky, so pay attention. C1Q binds causing a shape change in the C1R and the C1S serine proteases. So now C1S is free to cleave one of its substrates, C4, into something called C4A and C4B. So C4A is that little nubbin, and it's degraded, but C4B binds to the closest available membrane. It can't go too far because C4B has an exposed thioester bond, so it either immediately binds to a membrane or that bond gets hydrolyzes hydrolyzed, and the C4B becomes useless. So once you've deposited that C4B on the surface, another protein, C2, can bind to C4B. So once this C2 binds to C4B, C2 can be cleaved by C1S, and that's the serine protease from before. So now you have C2 that is also on the membrane, and it's going to break into C2A and C2B. And C2B is degraded, but C2A is actually enzymatically active, but only when it's bound to a membrane-bound C4B. So you can now call this complex C4B2A or C3 convertase. Does anyone want to guess what C3 convertase does? Hey, this is the enzyme that converts a protein called C3 into its components it's it's broken down subunits also when you were talking about this you just went through both of these exceptions now c4 coming before c3 and 33 and the <laughs> fact that c2 is the only comp is the only molecule that has its a and b components reversed compared to everybody else yeah there you go so confusing but there it is <laughs> <laughs> so This uh, C3 convertase can convert proteins called C3, but it doesn't just stop at one. So one molecule of this convertase, C4B2A, can convert over 200 molecules of C3B, which really amplifies that signal as loudly as it can. C3 is converted into the smaller C3A and C3B, and in contrast to the other proteins we've cleaved so far, the body just doesn't degrade the smaller protein generated by this cleavage. Instead, C3A acts as an anaphylatoxin. So have you heard of anaphylactic shock? Well, it's 
proteins like this that are to blame. This molecule initiates smooth muscle, muscle contraction, mast cell degranulation, as well as dilation and increased permeability of the blood vessels. Yeah, it's not very pleasant, but in moderation, C3A should really help to support an effective inflammatory response. When it's not in moderation, it can kill you, like many things that can in the immune system. Also, I think if you look at the vasodilation part, just it's by itself, you can imagine how this is helping in bringing in more blood flow and hence more immune cells to the site of injuries, therefore inflammation in general. Yeah, it's just, just letting the emergency guys in. Mm-hmm. So C3B is also a critical protein. That's the other side. This is not, uh, not, not only because it supports the rest of the pathway, but it helps to tag the membrane for phag- phagocytic cells to come and eat whatever it binds to. And this is a process called opsonization. So C3B can bind to FC receptors to help soluble antibody complexes get phagocytized or sent to the liver to dis- for destruction. It can also help make another convertase complex called C4B2A3B, which is actually a really strong computer password, <laughs> password if you need one. <laughs> and these help to cleave another protein called C5 into C5A and C5B. We'll talk more about C5 later. But what I want you to remember is that C3 is super important for protecting us from pathogens. People with deficiencies in making any of the complement proteins before C3 struggle with lifelong problems with both infectious and autoimmune disorders. People with deficiencies in C3 itself are susceptible to bacterial infections. And people with deficiencies with later components, that is the ones that come after C3, have far less serious problems fighting off bad guys, which kind of shows you how important each of these molecules are in this process. Yeah, that's that's really cool. It shows, yeah, that the amplification is really important. But that's the classical pathway. Would you like to explain the lectin pathway? Sure thing. The lectin, lectin pathway of complements proceed through the activation of a C3 convertase composed of C4B and C2A. However, instead of using antibodies as the starting point, the complement cascade starts with the recognition of particular carbohydrate components by a variety of proteins called lectins, or members of the phycolin family. Wait, what are lectins? Uh, lectins are proteins that can bind sugar, specific sugar structures. Uh, we have them in our cells to help us recognize pathogens, but we also use them to facilitate many processes like cell-to-cell signaling. Well, then. Uh, pathogens like bacteria also have lectins. The first lectin described to activate the complement system was the mannose binding lectin or MBL. This lectin can recognize mannose residue found in the surface of a variety of bacteria, fungi, and viruses, including salmonella, listeria, candida, HIV, among others. MBL is constitutively expressed by the liver and in the blood. This is, uh, in the blood, this is associated with MBL-associated serine proteases, which is abbreviated as MASP or M-A-S-P proteins. Among the MASP proteins, MASP2 is considered to be the most important player, and it re- resembles structurally a lot to the C1 serine proteases. And when it binds to microorganisms mannose, MASP2 cleavage cleaves both C4 and C2 
giving rise to C4B, C2A, C3 convertase. Wait, this step reminds me a lot of the classical pathway. It's super similar. Mass proteins take the place of C1R and C1S in cleaving C2 and C3, activating C3 convertase. After this initial step, the complement pathway uses the same elements as the classical pathway, leading to the formation of C4B, 2A, 3B, which are what we call as C5 convertase. Once you know the classical pathway, the lectin pathway is just a piece of cake. But what about the alternate pathway, Natalie? Uh, so the alternative pathway is a little bit different. It is similar to the lectin pathway in that it can be activated without antibody-antigen uh, interactions. However, it uses a totally different set of C3 and C5 convertases. Moreover, it can be initiated in three different ways. The first one to be discovered was called the tick-over pathway, which uses protein C3, factor B, factor D, and propertin, which you can also call factor P. Also, before you ask, yes, there are multiple pathways that exist within the umbrella of the alternative pathway. That's a lot of pathways. Also, it really sounds like they forgot how to name things by the time they got to the alternate pathway. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, only for the tick-over pathway. The other initiatory pathways for the alternative pathway are triggered by uh, either propertin alone or proteases like thrombin and calicrine. So let's review each of these. So the alternative tick-over is named because C3 is constantly being made and inactivated. So the scientists called that ticking over. So there's a lot of C3 just in your serum, and it can spontaneously hydrolyze its internal thioester bond, forming a slightly different molecule called C3H2O. Now, about half of a percent of serum C3 is C3H2O at any given time. So it just, it just does this naturally. This molecule is ever so slightly differently shaped from normal C3, which allows it to bind to another protein called factor B. Now, when C3H2O binds to factor B, the factor B can be cleaved by factor D, cutting away a little bit called BA, which is like uppercase B, lowercase a, generating a complex called the C3H2OBB. We call this complex the fluid phase C3 convertase because it isn't bound to any cells and is just kind of floating around. And this convertase can now cleave all sorts of C3 into C3A and C3B. So wait, we had all of these previous processes, let's say in the case of the lectin pathway or the classical pathway, it required either the presence of an, an antigen or a pathogen or an antibody bind to, bound to a pathogen to produce this C3 convertase. In this case, this fluid phase C3 convertase is just existing out of nowhere without any pathogen process. How does this not result in massive inflammation all the time? That's a really good question because it does seem like it has to be tightly regulated. So in a healthy host, the C3H2OBB convertase is really not very stable, so it degrades rapidly. However, if there is an infection, the new C3B molecules will bind to microbial surfaces tagging them. Moreover, factor B can also bind C3B that binds to those cell surfaces to form another convertase. How's having two different convertases so helpful? Well, the liquid phase convertase allows for the generation of a little bit of complement all the time, but the membrane bound allows for signal amplification on specific cells whenever there's a bad guy in the neighborhood. 
kind of like having a security guard who can then call in the SWAT team. So the membrane-bound C3BBB convertase <laughs> is also kind of unstable until bound by something called propardin, which stabilizes the con convertase to make lots and lots of those C3B molecules to amplify the signal. Once the alternative pathway is initiated, it can place more than 2 million molecules of C3B on the surface of a microbe. What's nice is that the C3B can then be used to create the C5 convertase complex, just like in the lectin and classical pathways. I like how the complement pathways have many redundancies and convergence points, especially the C3 convertase being a very important con uh, convergence point. It seems like it has involved to make sure that no matter what goes wrong, this pathway should always be able to work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, redundancies are a key feature of these really old evolutionary systems, and they help it so we, we don't miss out on something and end mm -hmm. up dying by, you know, <laughs> random invaders. Yeah. So, Plus, there are so many ways of initiating the complement pathways. It's like how we all came from different backgrounds, but we all still ended up coming, becoming immunologists. Like it was meant to be, or it was meant to C3B. Hey. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. I'll never do it again, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, though. So propardin may also be able to initiate the alternative pathway all by itself. In vitro, propardin can bind to artificial surfaces and immobilize C3B and factor B. So this hasn't been shown like in vivo, but it's also like pretty difficult because it's such a small protein. Moreover, proteases necessary for blood clotting, like thrombin, have also been found to be able to cleave complement components of C3 and C5 in vitro, suggesting that other proteases can also initiate the alternative pathway. So now we have to ask, how do all of these pathways uh, come together? Well, all of these three component pathways that we've gone over are capable of generating called something called the C5 convertase. C5 convertase is made up of C4B2A3B for the alternative pathway. C5 convertase is made up of C3BBBC3B. Oh my god. <laughs> Are you okay saying all that? <laughs> I know. Uh, B, 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 B. <laughs> what's important to know, though, like with all these letters, what's important to know is that the C5 convertase, no matter what it's made up, made up of, can cut up C5 into two pieces. That's the C5A and C5B. So C5B is deposited onto the microbial cell surface, but it degrades rapidly unless it is stabilized by another protein called C6. Then let me guess, we get C6, ABCD, FG, and all those <laughs> whole thing, and it's going to get opsonized or something? Oh, you're going to love this. So C6 <laughs> is going to bring in a bunch of proteins, but they're going to punch a hole in the surface of the microbe. Whoa. Yeah, so you are somewhat right in that we have more numbers coming, but they're all doing something super cool. So C5B is the initiating point, and then C6 is the anchor. Then C7 comes in and integrates just, just a little bit into the microbial cell membrane. Then C8 comes in, and it can dig in even a little bit more into that membrane. And then C9 can burrow all the way into the other side of the membrane. So it's like you have these proteins digging a hole in the membrane until you can bring in C9. And then we're just going to cram in more C9 molecules into that hole 
until it forms a pore, like an actual circle in the membrane of the microbe. And these proteins all together are called the membrane attack complex or the MAC. Oh, that's such a cool name. Also, I'm glad that after C5, we no longer have any of the subsequent proteins producing proteolysis products. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the full names and it's very easy to remember now. Also, this MAX looks like a bullet hole. Yeah, exactly. And and now the poor microbe will just start spilling its guts out and it will definitely die. Like there isn't just one hole either because of all the complement that's been deposited on the surface by all the different pathways. This can lead to multiple pores developed all over the surface and the microbe will just become riddled with holes. Yeah, that's the most hardcore thing I've heard today. <laughs> it happens inside you all the time without you even noticing. Uh, I'm I'm a little shaken up. Can we can we stop for the day? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Let's summarize what we've learned. Yeah, it was a lot and a lot of numbers, a lot of names, a lot of alphabet soup that hopefully people will remember. <laughs> How can we summarize all of this? Well, today we learned that uh, we learned that complement are little protein niblets in our serum that are constantly patrolling for bad guys. There are three different types of complement pathways. Uh, that can be initiated by different exposure to microbes. These pathways can lead to opsonization, initiation of inflammation, or the destruction of the pathogen. And lastly, we learned that these pathways share features and can converge at the formation of the membrane attack complex, leading to the destruction of the foreign entity. With that, I think we have covered in not a lot of detail, but just enough to show how the opsonization takes place, how the initiation of inflammation takes place through the anaphylatoxins and the destruction of the pathogen with the membrane attack complex. So I think this would be a good point to wrap up the discussion. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot, Natalie, for the wonderful discussion. Oh, thank you. For our audience. If you're interested to know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. You can find our blogs, journal clubs, and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at gmail.com. With that, I'm your host, Jatin Sharma, signing off until we meet again. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.